dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing another audio recording of the online seminar I attended from the Oregon Wine Board. This week, we learn about urban wineries in Portland, directly from their site. The pulse of PDX revolves around the creative craft food and beverage community, driven by the passion of the city's chefs, brewers, and winemakers. Portland is a thriving landscape for small wine producers. The centralized location of PDX allows makers to source from both Oregon and Washington to create some of the most diverse winery experiences in the state. This seminar is once again led by Master of Wine, Bree Stock. While you're listening, please take a moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available pretty much wherever you are listening to this podcast. Taking one minute of your time really is the best way to support Exploring the Wine Glass. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. Welcome everyone to the Portland Urban Wineries webinar for Oregon Wine Month. Today we'll be focusing on Portland and the urban wineries. Um, that uh, we get to enjoy right here in the city center of, of Portland, Oregon. Um, again, I am David DeWitt. I, I manage trade for the Oregon Wine Board. Thanks, David. Happy to be back for another Wine Month webinar session. And this one is a view from Portland downtown and its urban winemaking scene. We are fortunate, and that's the beautiful city of Portland, um, we are fortunate to have with us some of uh, our urban winemaking scene's most active and some of the oldest, not by age, but by <laughs> establishment uh, wineries on this webinar today. So uh, let's jump right into introducing them. We have the lovely Anne Hubach from Helioterra Wines. She has a fantastic winery in downtown uh, Portland and also a cidery. Uh, so that's one thing that you're going to discover in uh, this webinar is that those who are in the downtown can't help but dabble and explore all the world of fermented beverages. 
So we're super excited to have her and share her insights about being in this region uh, and one of the first urban wineries in downtown Portland. We also have Alex Morrow on from Archival Spirits and Ash Street Wines. Uh, Alex has been a restaurant, long-term restaurateur here in Portland um, who got bitten by the bug as many of us who started in restaurants do uh, and has moved across to making some of the most exciting vermouths and reviving um, archival spirits here in Portland. So excited to chat to him today as well. Um, unfortunately, Pam from Willful Wine can't join us today. She's having a puppy emergency, which I completely understand. Um, but we also have Julia Burke from uh, Willamette Valley Wineries on the line as well, um, who can answer any Willamette Valley specific questions that you may have. Um, and she's also a master at dropping in links and uh, giving you all the information that you could ever think about close at hand. Uh, and there she goes right there. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to touch very quickly on just the amount of wine regions that uh, Oregon touches on. And this is really important for the urban wine scene because all of these wine regions are actually available for tasting in the urban wine scene. Um, the, or the Oregon wine scene is really um, increasing quite dramatically. We have nearly 400 vineyards um, and around a thousand wineries now in Oregon um, and Portland. Um, and I'm gonna let you jump in and tell us a little bit about all of the regions that um, the urban wine scene focuses on um, or doesn't focus on for that, for that matter. Um, and especially since, you know, the Willamette Valley is actually nestled around the downtown core of Portland. So um, one of the few um, urban wine scenes that is actually situated within a nested ABA. Um, so Anne, can you just touch on not only the ABAs that you source from within the Willamette Valley or that the producers in, in Portland source from, but all around the state as well. Hey everybody, I am Anne Kubach from Helioterra Wines. I'm located in inner Southeast Portland and um, I'm kicking it right off with my notes here. Uh, thanks Bree for uh, one that I can read off. Um, so it's actually pretty incredible. We did a survey a couple of months ago across all 13 of us in the Portland Urban Winery Association, which to be fair is 13 of the 24 wineries that exist within the city. There are some that are just starting who maybe haven't like grown to a point that they've joined yet and others that, you know, maybe aren't necessarily on the team player uh, status, which is fine. Everyone has their own thing. But just amongst the 13 wineries that are members of the Portland Urban Winery Association, looking down my list here, I see 19 different AVAs that we source grapes from. So that's across Oregon and Washington. Um, so not just specifically the Willamette Valley and the nested AVAs, but actually as I'm looking here, um, everything that is up on your screen right now is represented by wineries in Portland, plus a number of others down in Southern Oregon and across Washington. So it's really quite exciting how much diversity you have within the wines produced in the urban center. Um, you know, we, no, none of us actually own our own vineyards. We rely 100% on um, our growers are our, our our growers in order to be producers because we 
we tend to focus just on the winemaking, focus on the areas where we believe we do best and, and hire the best growers out there to bring in fruit to, to make our wines um, in our urban wineries. So it is pretty remarkable how, how much of the Northwest you could taste if you were to visit a handful of the Oregon or the Portland urban wineries just in one afternoon or a weekend. Yeah, and, and that's pretty unique. Um, you know, when you think about coming wine tasting, you think about, you know, often, you know, making the trek out to the valley, you know, which is, you know, 45 minutes at least from Portland. Um, but it's quite possible for you to be able to fly into Portland in an afternoon or just for a weekend and taste a significant amount of what the state has to offer um, and even what Washington has to offer right from Portland. So that's that's pretty exciting and, and really a fun and accessible um, way to get into, you know, wine tasting um, in Oregon. Yeah, I'm also, I mean, to that end, I, we, as far as varietals that we work with, because you're pulling from so many different AVAs, there's over 24 different wine grape varieties made within the city limits of Portland that we know of right now. Um, I, at last I heard we grow over 70 different grapes within the, the state of Oregon. So for about a third of that to be represented within the city limits is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, and that's growing all the time as more varieties become available and farmers and growers um, continue to experiment with what can be grown uh, around the state here. Um, and even when it's by accident, so <laughs> you know, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of variety that's actually starting to come out, and not only variety of grape varieties, but varieties of styles of wine as well. Um, We'll jump into that a little bit later with Alex, but, and while we, oops, I don't know what I just did there. <laughs> and while, while we have you, um, knowing that you're the oldest um, established winery or second oldest established winery, uh, right in, in the Portland city limits, can you walk us through a little bit of the, of the history of, of the urban landscape here? Sure, like where we've been and where we're coming. So, yeah. um, I'll be honest, my history is a little bit more uh, new new world instead of old world. So some of this stuff that you're pointing to right now on the screen, I just learned actually when we started uh, researching this or talking about putting this talk together. So um, up until two weeks ago, I hadn't heard about Adam's Winery. So I'm actually, I got to learn something uh, about the urban wine scene in just doing this particular talk. But it is no surprise that this area of Portland is home to a lot of wineries, specifically the inner Southeast, that first picture. So specifically like where my winery is located is also um, on the cusp of what we call Produce Row, which historically in the early days of Portland um, was when a lot of the farmers, the Italians and the Germans who were growing orchards and other crops on the banks of the Willamette River would bring them down to the, the river and put their crops out onto you know, the, the shore, the, the, the bank of the river and sell their produce that way. So there were boats that would come up and people would buy the produce. So it really is not that stretch from a historical standpoint to go from farmers and folks in ag who were growing and producing and selling fruit 
produce right here on the banks of the Willamette um, to now having a winery. I'm seven blocks away from the, the bank of the Willamette River, and that is about as close as you could be to that historical data point. So that's pretty cool. Um, Adams Winery, I'll be honest, I need to learn more about them myself, but they were here first. They no longer exist. And then uh, jumping a couple of years, 15 years or so after that, um, Lori and Renee of Hip Chicks, they started their winery in 1999. So they are the oldest um, operating winery in Portland. They, um, they were kind of the lone ranger for quite a long time until around 2008 and 2009 when a few of us started coming into that scene. So um, for my own story, I started in at the same time that a couple others jumped in. So my friend, John Groshow of GC Cellars had opened up a shared winery with what is currently Bodecker Cellars, but it was shared between Bodecker and Groshow at that time. Myself and Vincent Fritchie of Vincent Wine Company both shared a little bit of space in John's winery. So there you went just in our building alone in 2009, you went from Renee and Lori having their lone outpost of urban wine in 1999 to 2009. And we just like over quadrupled it. So you added Groschau, Vincent, Heliotera, Bodecker, and at the same time, Enso Winery and a couple of others were also joining the scene. So it, all of a sudden, um, you know, the island of Hip Chicks Do Wine became more of a community. And so at that point in 2010, around there, we started the Portland Urban Winery Association and um, kind of really started to bind together as far as promoting this as a, a sub region or a region to come and visit as far as tourism within the Oregon wine scene. And, and like you said earlier, Bree, the fact that we were creating something here in the city that was emblematic of what was happening out in the valley, but giving, giving tasters, consumers for the first time an opportunity to get off the plane and come right to a winery instead of driving and spending a whole day uh, to get out to the valley. So that's something that's pretty unique. And um, yeah, we've been doing it for, well, since the association's been around almost 15 years now, so. Great. Do, do you have any insight into, you know, what maybe prompted that movement in, you know, 2008 to, you know, suddenly have all of these, you know, wineries starting to look and making wine? Is it, was it just opportunity? Were you working together to, you know, to move into that place specifically? Because, you know, I think you started out in the valley, didn't you, making wine? And I think I, Pam Yeah, I worked for other wineries for about eight years before um, launching Helioterra. And actually, I know that a couple of us were all part of um, this little group that I started that was back in around 2008, which was kind of a winemaker support group, because there were a bunch of us that were like assistant winemakers or winemakers at other wineries that we were all either had just started the, the initial stages of starting a brand or were inspired to start a brand or were on that like path. And, you know, I knew that I knew how to make wine. I knew that I had made plenty of 90 point plus wines. I didn't know the first thing though about starting a winery, starting a brand, where do you get glass? How do you, who do you design a label? What licensing do you need? And so there was probably between six and 10 of us that would meet up quarterly and, and have wine, <laughs> surprise, um, and talk about those things. And through that, a couple of us, John, Vincent, myself decided, you know, hey, maybe 
sharing some space, John had already committed to a building. And then he was like, well, if you guys want to come on board, help me pay a little of the rent and, and see how that goes. Um, so for, for like, at least that little cluster of us, I think it was uh, that and other people kind of spurred off from there as well. Um, you know, as far as the timing of that, I don't know. It seems like dumb timing. It was a recession. It was like, you know, why start a business at that same time? And I myself was silly enough to also birth my second child in the same year as starting my winery. So that was also a brilliant idea. So, um, you know, it was one of those things that, um, I don't know, kismet. It was just kind of a, a relational thing that a lot of us dove in at that time. I think maybe, you know, there's, I think a couple different waves of winemakers. There's like the, the early stages, um, you know, the, the founders, the David Adelsheims and the David Butts and those guys. And then there's the next wave, sort of like the Lynn Penner ashes of the world that, you know, had been, had a lot of experience and started their brands. I like to think that I and a couple of the other urban wine people are in kind of maybe that third wave that we worked for a lot of these, either the founders or the secondary wave. I worked for Adelsheim for a while. I worked for Joe Dobbs for a while. Um, and then we were inspired to start our own thing. So um, as far as like the, the generational turn of the Oregon wine scene, maybe it was just that it was time for a lot of us to then spread our wings after we had had a few years experience working for these other wineries. You know, I, I, if I was to build off that, though, I think there's some there's a bigger context piece in there, too, that um, I think it's interesting, like Hip Chicks, for anyone who's familiar with the city of Portland, like Hip Chicks is located, they're like two doors down, basically, from the original hair of the dog brewery in Portland. And I, I do think that that interim period between like 1999 and 2000, the late 2000s, there's like a huge amount of like, there's just this like explosion and percolation of craft breweries, craft distilleries, and they all happen in the same area, like the Portland Distillery Row. It emerges in the late 90s, early 2000s in exactly, basically between Ann's Winery and my winery, or around the corner from Hip Chicks. Um, and I, I think that there's a bigger context in there about what happened to Portland in, the, in, in that time period where there's just a lot of bubbling interest in craft beverage, which spills out into winemaking um, and creates all this interest around it. Yeah, and making it so accessible into an urban landscape as well, whereas you know, maybe before wine is not seen as much in front of you know, those in Portland or seen as being part of you know, that urban landscape so much, you have really had to make an effort to go out to wine country. And so, yeah, having that explosion of craft makers of everything um, is, is sort of, you know, exciting in an urban landscape as well, and really starts to share um, a new product with people. Well, like Anne says, I think that there's a sort of like collective knowledge that it requires in the nerve landscape. Like, how do you how do you move glass around in the city between, you know, from place to place and, and putting fitting into odd places and retrofitting buildings? And I don't know, my own experience, I benefited greatly from like colleagues who helped me sort of navigate the city urban planning because you go into the urban planning office and they're like, you want to start a what? Like, you, you can't put a winery in a downtown that belongs like out in wine country. Right. Um, yeah. And, and there, and as long as you figure out how to navigate those things, but it requires um, like having the collective wisdom of a bunch of colleagues. Yeah. I was even just thinking, where do you put all the grape must? <laughs> After yeah. You pressed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's There's, an interesting set of questions. There are a couple of wineries that um, 
started actually they joke that it's like their two-car winery that they converted their their home garages into that and then used their city compost program because we do have that here in portland where there's a city compost program where they pick up green waste at your house every week um and there were some wineries that literally started just in their garage that they got it licensed and bonded and um use the resources within the city limits to start a small amount of commercial wine yeah that's amazing and there's i've just got a couple of these shots here that were um you know sent over from from people with uh, their you know the inside of the look at an urban winery which doesn't really look that different to the inside of a of a you know regular winery except that it just seems like the footprint is a lot more condensed <laughs> Yeah. Fewer tractors. Fewer tractors, yeah. <laughs> you need those really small forklifts so you can get around in there. <laughs> you also really can't do anything outside. That's that in, in contrast. So everything has to be inside because there's there is a lot more crime. And you know, you don't have mm. a crush pad that would violate city codes outdoors. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, and also for so for that reason, does the urban uh, wine scene or urban winery scene remain, you know, fairly small? Is that a, it, what's the average, you know, case production of, of an urban winery? Hmm. Um, that's a really good question. I think there are a fair amount of smaller producers, but I think you know, there's a handful of folks. Well, okay, let me say this. No, there is no one that is a large producer, right? There's no one in the urban center that would be considered a large pr producer. There are a lot of people that are small producers and a handful that are probably medium-ish. But, you know, in context, you know, 75% of Oregon wineries are 70 or 5,000 cases or less, right? So, when you take that into account, if you consider 5,000 average, sure, there's a bunch of us that are making that quantity of wine. More than that, there's only going to be a handful of those within the urban core that do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one other question, um, accessibility. You know, I was thinking back to what you were talking about, you know, with the timing and and saying it was kind of crazy timing uh right for the for the wineries um to be starting up in you know at basically the great recession um but is there a really you know is it an actual conversation that there is more you know it's more accessible to start something up um in in an urban setting or you don't have to buy a vineyard, you don't have, you know, it's not a big land investment and maybe there's less, um, you know, agricultural sort of structures around an urban setting. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I would say that there is a lot of um, collaboration that happens within the city. And I think also most of us, because we're not tied to an estate vineyard, um, are also thereby not as tied to an estate winery. So per, perhaps that spurs more of a sharing mentality that people are more open to share equipment or, you know, you have Matt in the picture there on the Clark forklift, you know, for a while I didn't, I didn't have a press and I actually for one vintage brought a bunch of my wine over to his winery and pressed it there and then just trucked it as juice back to my winery. Um, so like that sort of sharing both within a building, but also across town, you know, those things I think are are definitely um, 
much more accessible. I think the Oregon wine industry in general has a deep entrepreneurial spirit, but also the fact that, um, you know, Oregon in general still hasn't reached not yet a, a cost ceiling that it makes it too expensive for an average person to get into this industry. There's a lot of people who can scrap this by on, you know, little extra savings or their salary, you know, over their day job and still have a day job and make wine. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case if you're talking about other, you know, real expensive, fancy, well-regarded um, AVAs, not to say that Willamette Valley isn't that a uh, well-regarded AVA, but, you know, the entry to, the cost of entry in Napa is significantly more expensive than the cost of entry in the Willamette Valley. But I think also like on that accessibility question, like I think that uh, like the fact of the matter is that like most of the, ma the majority of winemakers in Oregon or anywhere for that matter don't own estates, right? Like they don't own the vineyards that they get grapes from. They work with producers and they or they work with growers. And, and I think that's true of all of us in Portland that are making wine. Like we just pick and choose the growers that we work with. In some cases, those growers might be in the Columbia Valley. In some cases, those might be from the Willamette Valley or down in Southern Oregon. Um, I don't think it's really much different. I think that actually Anne's point about um, this photo of Matt Burson of Portland Wine Company is an interesting one because I know Matt used to make wine for a while. He made wine out in McMinnville, like in sort of the heart of Oregon wine country, but he lives in Southeast Portland. And I think he just got tired of driving out to McMinnville to make wine and figured out like, oh, I can actually do this in the city. Um, and I know Pam at Wilful Wines is the same way. It's like, well, why am I keep driving out to McMinnville every, you know, every day to go make wine out there when I can make, I could just haul the grapes into the city and I can make the same quality of wine, if not better in the city as I was in the Valley and just not travel nearly as long. I could spend more time focusing on winemaking and less time focusing on driving, right? Yeah, especially if you're purchasing all your fruit anyway, then, you know, yeah, let the growers do, you know, their craft and, you know, you trust them and they understand your style and you're still visiting the vineyard. But yeah, having to do a, you know, a 45 minute hour long commute back to the city after doing a 12 hour day or, you know, for seven days a week for six weeks, it's, that's a grind. So yeah, I completely understand that. Well, I know, Pam, we were sitting down talking about what about this subject um, in a sort of other session. And I remember Pam saying that, like, there were certain kinds of wine that she just didn't want to make because she didn't want to go out to the valley to stir her Chardonnay uh, multiple times a week. And so she just didn't make Chardonnay. And it wasn't until she moved into the city that she was actually able to sort of start making some of the varietals that she wanted to because she was closer to it and could go check on it more regularly. I mean, there are a number, like we lose a lot in the city in terms of like traditional pastoral aesthetics of wineries, right? You can't sit out on the deck and and, and look over the, over the vineyards, but you do, um, we can make amazing wine in the city it doesn't hinder our abilities and arguably we can maybe make as good or better wine because we have like this close network of people we can borrow equipment from each other um, we can collaborate in the same building um, I mean I know that at Portland Wine Company there's multiple people uh, there's at least two people working in that two wineries in that same building and I know Anne's got this really awesome project going on right now yeah and do you want to tell us a little bit about your project well, thanks for that easy softball there, Alex. <laughs> um, yeah, I think to that point, there are a lot of us that share share space. I started out in a in a shared 
winery. Actually, my entire history of of making Helioterra has been in a shared winery space. And there's a lot about that environment that I really like and appreciate. And, you know, specifically being able to just share conversation and community with people within your building and, and bounce ideas off of people and taste different wines and see what you think. And um, so building from that, when I got my, when I leased my winery in 2018, um, had a few friends also in my building, but then fast forward to this past vintage and organically every single tenant in my building was a female. And I thought, you know, there's, this is really cool. This is unique because women are not predominant within the wine, wine world and within this industry, it is definitely still a male dominated field. So to have not only, you know, a, a handful of women winemakers, but have an entire building full of them, I thought, hey, this is something that I think is probably pretty special and reached out to a few different, um, you know, Oregon Wine Growers Association, Willamette Valley Wines, the Research Librarian of the Multnomah County uh, Library, and um, then also finally reached out to the, the wine writer here at the Oregonian and said, hey, I think I'm onto something. I don't think anyone else is doing this. I don't think there's another collaborative space that's all women. And I was right. Um, we're the only all women cooperative space, not only in the country, but there's only one other one loosely doing the same thing in Australia. So to only have two all women production facilities in the world um, is both sad, but also exciting um, and an opportunity to keep keep growing from there. So yeah, we've um, we've renamed the production space, the, the PDX Urban Wine Revolution, and are looking forward to, to building on that and building more, you know, incubating more women winemakers into the Oregon wine industry. Fantastic. And Alex, you know, you came from the from the restaurant side, from the chef side, you know, we hear about a lot of sommeliers coming into, um, you know, the wine making scene, but, you know, we don't often hear about a lot of chefs crossing over. Um, is that something that's, you know, more common in the Portland urban landscape because of, you know, you're surrounded by so many fantastic restaurants and I imagine the chef community has the same type of, you know, deep community conversations and crossover that the winemakers do. How did you get into, you know, coming over to this side? <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I don't know, relatively speaking, it's commonality, but I do know that in Portland, a number of us come out of the service industry and the restaurant world. Um, I mean, my own background is like I worked around restaurants in Portland for a number of years. And uh, I worked at the, like the Heathman Hotel in the late 90s. And, um, and I got the opportunity to go over and work in France and Italy. And so I traveled around in France and I was living in the Piedmont for a while, um, working in a hotel restaurant. And I got totally turned on to um, digestif wines and Amaros and aperitif wines. These are things that I just had no idea even existed. Um, and I and became completely, uh, you know, in love with them and but couldn't really figure out how to make them. And so I came back to the United States and there wasn't really things available like it. Um, and so I started 
fooling around and messing around with different um, ideas and sort of experimenting, bouncing ideas off people that I know. I mean, this is one advantage of working in Portland is that the culinary scene is big, for a city its size, right, is pretty uh, robust and well-developed. Like, I think that's probably fairly well-known across the sort of like culinary world in, in the United States. But um, it means that there's a lot of really amazing palettes around town, right? And so like I can take um, formulas and test batches, like right now I'm working on the Samaro, this wine-based tomorrow. And I've, I've been able to sort of shop it around town, sort of get ideas from friends and colleagues that I know. And, you know, winemakers talk to people all the time, right? I mean, all winemakers everywhere have a close net of colleagues that they refer to and they talk to. But I do think one advantage to being in a, in a very urban setting is that my colleagues are oftentimes winemakers, but, but they're also equally as much uh, craft distillers, um, craft beer makers and uh, chefs and restaurants, sommeliers. I mean, if you think about like the number of restaurants that are, you know, within walking distance, literally walking distance of my winery, it, it's huge, right? I mean, I was looking this up earlier today, like I'm only 2.8 miles away from Anne's winery, right? Um, Portland Wine Company's, the other direction is 2.8 miles. Um, it means that I can do things like I can, I can wander into Canard and go talk to the bar manager at Canard and ask her about what she wants to thinks about doing with like an aperitif wine that I may, might make, right? Um, and that's just a really distinct, interesting advantage of living in an urban setting, um, which is probably distinct than a rural setting. And it may explain why a bunch of these people, names that we've referenced, right? Like I know Matt Burson came from the service industry. Sean Groshow came from the service industry. Um, there's just a number of us that sort of uh, came out of that same probably late 90s um, restaurant milieu that came around in Portland. Um, and I think that kind of continues, has continued on. Yeah. And I love also a lot of that, you know, sh not only the sharing of, I guess, palates, but that sort of shared celebration of fermented beverages. And I was just talking to, um, Lee Medoff, one of the, you know, distillers in, you know, Bull Run Distillery, um, owner of, of that, who's downtown Portland, and just how he was, you know, sourcing wine barrels from, you know, wineries, and then also, you know, giving them back to other people to like giving them to brewers or so there was just this, um, a lot of like, I guess, cross pollination of, um, of shared resources, but then also, I imagine, I mean, Anne, I know that you're doing cider as well. I imagine there's starting to be some more collaborations between wineries and brewers and wineries and cideries and, and you know, it's all the fermentation landscape um, and you don't have to sort of peg yourself into one specific style or one specific variety because there's so much creativity all around you. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty, it's really pretty cool, actually. I know I've done collaborations with um, a couple of breweries on our cidery side. I've done some cider, some uh, uh, snake bites, some cider beer combos. I've also, I made a, a Manhattan cocktail inspired cider, which was a, a cherry cider that was aged in 
bourbon barrels from Freeland Spirits. And then after we spent two years aging that cider, the cherry cider, we then emptied those bourbon barrels and then gave them to Westward Whiskey where they were going to make a specific whiskey aged in the cherry cider uh, barrels as a next generation. So like talk about round robin, you know, it kind yeah. of just really fits in that way. Um, and I've definitely collaborated on some beers that have been um, aged in, in different Pinot or Syrah barrels. I've I, a lot, I know Matt just recently did a Riesling snake bite or a Rattler style beer with a, a brewery here. I know I've, I've given some grape must to some breweries in the past that would be part of their, their, um, their brewing. We also made some cider wine hybrids. We, we co-fermented some ciders with uh, some grape skins and made some rosé ciders that way. Um, we also back sweetened the cider with some Pinot Blanc juice one time. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, collaborations that are happening around uh, around the different industries. And Alex, to your point too, or and Bree mentioning Lee, my building before it was a winery was a distillery. So um, talk about really vertically integrating the the spirits and alcohol production within Southeast Portland. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty creative and, and a neat vein of history that goes through it. Also, someone in the chat uh, asked the question of, is there a lot of collaboration between the restaurants and the wineries? And there are, I think it's maybe a little bit less common, but there definitely have been um, a few wineries that will partner with restaurants and make a small batch wine that would be specifically made for that restaurant as an exclusive product that would be glass poured for that restaurant. So, um, there's a lot of those opportunities, which I, I do believe kind of probably happens more or the potential to happen more within an urban center because like Alex said, we were just, you know, a few blocks away from some of the best restaurants and the best chefs in the in the country. So, um, you know, the, the, the restaurant closest to my house is Coquine and, and Katie Millard has been nominated for a James Beard Award three times. Um, so that's, you know, I literally joke with them that I could put my car in neutral and coast down to my house from, the, from their, their restaurant on the hill. So I do think there is a lot more opportunity um, to partner with a lot of different producers and our chefs and the whole amazing creative, creative food and beverage scene that happens here in Portland. And now a word from our sponsor. Josina Wines loves to give back. There are so many fur babies that deserve to find their forever home. We would love to be able to help as many as possible. If you are part of a nonprofit organization or know of a nonprofit organization that would like to hold a fundraiser, please contact us at contact at dracinawines.com or visit our website, dracinawines.com, to fill out the form. How does the fundraiser work? It is super simple and costs your group absolutely nothing. Together, we will choose a month that your group will be sponsored. During the month, you promote the fundraiser just like any other event you'd hold. At the end of the month, we will donate 20% of the sales to your organization. The donations will be made in the name of each individual who purchased the wine so that you know exactly who helped the animals. Our goal is to raise as much funds as we possibly can and to help as many animals as possible. So please help us help as many fur babies as we possibly can. You know, I, that, um, on that cross-pollination, my interesting sort of connection, I mean, I say that like I 
access have access to like distillers and craft breweries and things like that but some of them are just very practical like at the so the primary product that i make is this vendorange uh aperitif wine and it has white wine and brandy and like a thousand pounds of organic sevilla oranges and they get steeped in wine and brandy and and what do i do with like a thousand or more pounds of sevilla oranges when i'm done with them because they don't stay in the final product so I just like posted on my Instagram feed. Does anybody have any suggestions about what I can do with 2,000, 1,000 pounds of organic Sevilla oranges? And one of my friends at a distillery around, you know, like two miles from the winery said, we'll bring them down and we'll just distill them. So then there's this discussion about like, well, let's redistill them and then let's put that back into the final product. We can increase the orange profile that happens on the backside. Some of it's experimentation, but some of it just turns into very practical, like what could we do with this? Um, and I know that that distillery uh, in question, like they, they do a whole bunch of contract distilling like months out of the year do contract distilling for every winery in Oregon, um, uh, do, helping them with fortification projects, right? Like distilling, contract distilling for small lots that then they can use in port wines or for various fortified wines of some kind. Um, and I think that that's another one of these sort of like intersections of the craft industry within the city, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one of the most exciting I, know, I love going to and seeing what the distillers are doing and what they're playing with and just having access to all of that fruit and yeah, orchard fruit as well, knowing that, you know, you're not far from Hood River and all of the cherries and pears and apples and to your point and the cideries as well. So yeah, there just seems to be a, a recently there seems to be a lot more of that sort of experimentation happening around town as well. Um, and that was just one of the um, images of um, that. That was the Port and Wine Collective, wasn't it? That that tasting room that we had just up there a second ago. Um, that one with Matt again. Oh, that's the Portland Wine Company. Yeah. Portland Wine Company. That's it. But yeah, there's so much. I love you know. There's definitely a lot of people watching to happen in Portland. That's for sure. So you know, to some extent, it's a little bit more entertaining than looking at a you know planted vineyard. <laughs> depending yes, on what mood you're in <laughs> someone in the chat asked about the different views and julia was great about putting in some some suggestions about instagram um i'll i, I just want to point out i'm i'm in my loft right now which is one of our private tasting spaces but uh, i'm on a laptop so i can't flip the screen but from where i am i'm literally <laughs> above the cellar so, you know, you can, this isn't a vineyard shot, but you know, I'm literally in my lofted space above my winery that you could come and have a tasting right here and be literally in the middle of the cellar and see what's going on. And in fact, we do host harvest happy hours where our guests could be up here in the loft in the middle of harvest and see the fermentations and actually taste what's happening in the cellar and see the action while being safe in a cozy lounge environment. That's something you don't get access to very often, for sure. <laughs> you know, I think um, Pam isn't here uh, from Willful Wines, and she she was uh, she had to um, she wasn't able to attend for a reason. But I know one thing that she was uh, that she wanted to make about all this like panoply of um, of wineries that exist in Portland is like that range of experience that they go all the way from like really tiny like loading dock wineries all the way up to much more traditional wine tasting experience. I mean, I think this is one thing about 
for people interested in coming to Portland urban wineries, you can have all sorts of different experiences all the way from the sort of classic, like let's sit in the, in the barrel room and barrel taste from like the finest vineyards in the state um, all the way down to, you know, tiny little wineries that are doing crazy, you know, uh, pet gnats and pickets and, and uh, carbonic macerations of, you know, co-fermented whites and reds with some cider tossed in. Like it really like runs the whole gamut. And I think that's one of the things that makes Portland, the Portland wine making scene so fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely a fun and good group environment to taste in because you don't have to, you know, please everyone with the, you know, one great variety or style that, you know, you get to, you get to experiment all over the place. Um, and that's also one of these, you know, we've got um, Jackalope, Corey from Jackalope's, um, you know, white franc, so Cabernet, you know, white sparkling wine from Cabernet Franc that he makes as well and, you know, serves in a can. Um, and we're seeing a lot more wine cans showing up in Portland. We know that, you know, Union were one of the first to really begin that here in, in Portland, but it's really caught on, um, you know, around the, around the state and especially um, in Portland and the Willamette Valley. And then, and also to, you know, to your, um, innovation here with the to-go pouch. I'd never seen that before. And it's such a great idea. Um, you know, having something that you can just throw in your fridge, it isn't going to take up so much space. And also you can have a glass of and it's not going to oxidize. It's fantastic. Yeah, that was really a pandemic pivot. Actually, I had no intention of going into alternative packaging in that specific mode, but um, literally right before COVID hit, I had um, partnered with a restaurant chain, or not chain, a, a restaurant group, and had committed the equivalent of about 100 cases worth of wine to keg. And so had kegged up all of this wine for these restaurants that then literally a month later, all of them shut. And so I was sitting on a whole bunch of keg wine and a whole bunch of potential profit, in, including a very large portion of my rosé, which it was about to be summer. And I, I panicked and I was just like, I got to come up with an answer. And I talked to the, the head of the restaurant group and I said, look, I think I have an answer because um, I had found these pouches and they're made from recycled materials. They can be reused. They're also a growler so you can rinse them and reuse them. I'm, I'm really high on sustainability. So I really want to not put more crap into the world. So to be able to reuse something and also have a product that is already made from recycled materials was really cool. Um, but yeah, so I just turned around, found these pouches, ordered a whole boatload of them and um, cases of them um, and started filling from keg into pouch. And it just so happened that, you know, all of us were turning towards outdoor activities. We were boating, we were hiking, we were, you know, skiing, we were camping and this like embodies the Northwest outdoors spirit in a really amazing way. And like all the cans and stuff too, the same thing, like this more to go type beverage because everyone took to the outdoors when the pandemic hit because, you know, it was safer. You could sort of still be social with people in an outdoor open air environment. And so I think the sustainability, but also just the, the, the aspect of, um, the the to go part, portion of that that is less heavy, more easily accessible, more single serving really did help the alternative packaging 
take a new a new turn when the pandemic did hit because a lot more people were hitting the outdoors and wanted to take a beverage with them. So you did see a lot more cans and pouches and boxes and you know single serving type options that existed. Hey, Ann, I've got to ask, does that pouch right there, does it fit into a hydration pack? And can you hook a, 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 a straw up to straw. it? Straw. back, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. I, I, you know, I think, I think it will fit into an hydration patch, and I'm sure the creative among us could definitely rig well, that to work. Yeah, right. easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I almost I almost started selling it with the straw so it could be the adult Capri Sun. Yeah, it's totally an adult juice pack. Yeah. But sustainable. I love it. Yep. It's completely yeah, that, refillable. That pouch right there is actually a magnum. That is two bottles of wine. Wow. Yeah, two bottles. Okay. Yeah. That is crazy. Well, and I guess, you know, going back to um, sustainability in Oregon, it's been a sustainable state from, you know, even before there were vines planted here, so, you know, in 66, the governor, um, you know, enlisted environmental um, um, acts to protect, um, you know, public recreational lands to protect ag lands from urban development as well. And then also the bottle bill as well, which was passed in 71. So Portlandians or Oregonians, I guess, have always been sort of on that forefront or first foot of being of the sustainable movement. And I think possibly because we do spend so much time outside, it's so beautiful here. And, uh, you know, we're reined in for six months of the year. So it's nice to spend as much time outside in the summer when we've got those long sunshine hours when we can. Um, and, and we definitely tend to protect our environment around us as well. Uh, and then I just wanted to hit one more time on the <laughs> urban landscapes experimentation and diversity and just how many different styles of wine are being made. Um, pet nats, paquettes, sparkling wine in cans, those co-fermentations of ciders and wines and the country wines, um, Alex and his amazing uh, vermouths and, and brandies. There's a lot, there's a lot going on here. Um, Alex and Anne, is there is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? We're almost at time here um, about the PDX urban landscape. I was I was trying to think of some of the things that were in the chat. I mean, there was um, you know, there's a question in there about uh, our experience with like the OLCC or government agencies, and yeah. I, I I don't think that hasn't been particularly any different. I mean, I I do think that like the city development agencies kind of they kind of it's an odd question to say like hey how do i license my winery in the city of portland um but we also have lots of other advantage we have some advantages that urban that rural wineries don't i remember i mean i used to live in seattle and i and i started the process of licensing a winery up there and someone told me like well don't don't even think about trying to license a winery outside of the city because like wastewater problems are so there it's become so restrictive like out in Woodenville trying to license a winery because the, you can't get rid of wastewater because it all has to um it all has to there's no there's no urban wastewater system right whereas in Portland is no big deal right like I have unlimited I, mean, I try to use as little water as I can but I, I we have you know we have unlimited clean water and we can dispose of it easily enough um and and that hasn't been a problem and then there's the other advantage like i think there might be more people in portland like kegging wine and making these alternative formats because like we're really close to the places where we can deliver it to right like i keg 
I just started kegging rosé and um, I have this great arrangement where I drop the keg off at the restaurant that serves it and then I go pick it up when they're done and it's not very far away so it's very convenient for me um, and I know that that is common among other people in the in the Portland scene right yeah yeah that that accessibility to the restaurant scene is definitely um, mm -hmm. a huge a huge you know well actually one thing that we haven't really spoken about is that the average cost of a bottle of urban wine is a lot lower than those from some of the other parts of the Willamette Valley and maybe that also is influenced from having so many restaurants next to you or being in restaurants where you're you know very conscious of like BTG you know pricing and um you know why do you think that is that there's you know it's it seems like a very accessible you know price point to get into the wine scene in Portland I mean, I think one part about it is that it's, at least for me as a startup winemaker, like three years ago, I think it's, um, I was able to sell direct for quite a while because there's just so many outlets to sell to in the city of Portland. Um, I would say that like the small size of most of the wineries and the sort of experimental nature of it makes it, I think all of us are kind of interested in the accessibility of our wine, like not producing things that are, I won't, this isn't true. I think the bottom, the price range, goes all the way from like $16 up to $80, right? Like you can buy the most affordable wines and you can buy the highest end, most exclusive, you know, you can buy Shea vineyard wines and you can buy, um, you know, like big reds from Washington, from really select Washington vineyards. So it sort of runs the gamut, but I think that's a reflection of our interest in making wine accessible and making it accessible to like a whole different crowd, whether that's in cans or pouches, but that also is true price ranges, right? From, and going all the way from the teens up to the, almost up to triple digits. I would also, I, I totally agree with you, Alex, but I would also piggyback on that and just go back to a little bit of what we were saying in the beginning. The fact that, you know, most of us lease our buildings May, a few might own them and a few might lease, you know, from other people who own or lease them. So by virtue of that, we don't own a lot of real estate. We own a lot of equipment, but that's not any more than any other winery anymore or less. And so, you know, by virtue of not owning a large plot of land and, you know, paying mortgage on a whole vineyard and, you know, having an entire team of labor for the vineyard and the winery, um, I think there's, there is a lower cost that you have if you're if you're only making wine and purchasing grapes than if you own a very large piece of land um, where you're growing fruit. So you know the overhead that we have is a smaller footprint than someone who has an estate vineyard. Um, you know, obviously everyone has their different you know their overhead cash flow situations, but I would say that you know. The cost of entry for an urban winery, you can skinny that down a little bit because your your costs tend to be a little bit lower, especially in a shared setting. So well, yeah, you're I, in a, you're in a co-op and you're being able to share your machinery costs, your equipment costs as well, and and not having the vineyard costs um, associated with that. Yeah, I think one thing that we haven't uh, mentioned is that all, to my knowledge, all of the PDX urban wineries and even beyond the association, every other winery that I know in the city of Portland is independently owned, 
right? There, there are no groups or, um, uh, uh, yeah, no, there are no like structured organizations that own wineries. All the winemakers that I know in Portland, they are the winemaker and they're the owner and they do all the accounting and they do all of the cleaning and they do, they do everything, right? Um, and this is not, I mean, the, there are a lot of independent winemakers in Oregon and you go out to the Valley and you go down to Southern Oregon and there's a lot, even a you know, vast majority of wine is still made by independent wineries, but a hundred percent of the wine made in Portland is independently made. Right. And the chances of going into a winery, into a tasting room and talking to the person who actually runs the forklift is really high um, because that's, they're all just, we're all really small. We're all really small organizations. Yeah. Um, along those lines, there's some uh, a lot of great questions that are rolling in on the chat right now. Um, one that are there many growers of, for purchasing grapes available, or do most of them also make their own wine? There's there's definitely um, well, help me with the stat, Bree, because there's there's a lot of vineyards out there that do not have a winery and there are a lot of vineyards that have a winery but also grow excess amounts of grapes that many other wineries purchase yeah so there's there's you know more than 1400 vineyards and there's only just scraping a thousand wineries and that doesn't include you know the wineries or wine brands that are owned by the same company but have multiple you know, different brand names. So I would say that, you know, the, the vineyard expansion and planting continues. And I think what we're starting to see is, um, you know, growers who don't want to just sell their fruit to just one, you know, company or one winery. There's a lot that want to experiment um, around, you know, and give their fruit to a lot of different people to see what the fruit can be in different hands and with different creative minds behind it. So I think that from even that grower perspective, there's a lot more, um, you know, expansion and, and creativity happening from a grower perspective as well. Yeah. And in the Willamette Valley alone, there's, yeah, 700 and something odd wineries and, and nearly a thousand vineyards, um, you know, and often as you move further south as well, you know, you start to get larger vineyard sizes as well, who are um, selling to not only producers in uh, Southern Oregon, but they're also selling to those in Portland or in the Willamette Valley as well. So there's just a lot of um, sharing of, you know, of fruit and, and styles across, across those vineyards as well. I mean, one of the nice things about being in Portland is it's so accessible to get to different vineyards. Um, and I know Ann and Pam and I had talked about this, about how, you know, we can drive just as easily to McMinnville and out to Carlton or Willamette Valley to those vineyards as we can go out to the gorge, right? Like later this week, I'm going to go check on a vineyard um, and on the Washington side of the Columbia River and go see how they're doing because they're way high up in elevation. We've had a bunch of snow lately, um, but that's not any further away to get drive to the gorge as it is to drive out to the Willamette Valley. Walla Walla is closer than some. Southern Oregon is for us. So really like it, we're sort of at this intersection of like all these amazing wine growing vineyard uh, growing regions and we can check on all of them and it's easy to go out and, and see them and visit those people and have that close relationship. Yeah. And from a winemaking, you know, um, perspective and experience, it gives you a lot, um, 
more experience and a lot more, you know, creativity to be had working with fruit that comes in at, you know, different grape varieties, different bricks levels, you know, different ripening levels. Um, and then, you know, how they all perform differently in the cellar as well. You know, there's a lot of different decisions that you can make there. Um, and the blending between regions, you know, you're not so reliant on having to have, you know, a Willamette Valley AVA or Umpqua Valley AVA, you know, you can blend across the regions and have an Oregon wine, at, you know, and you, if you're purchasing from vineyards all over the state, it's truly an Oregon wine, you know, that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one other thing that I was just thinking about too, that we've, we've piggybacked on, but honestly, I think, I think being in the urban center um, while going through the pandemic might've just saved my brand. Um, and allowed me to even remain in business because I spent the first probably six months of the pandemic with a large portion of my time literally dropping off cases of wine on people's front porches, which I, I, I kid you not, it felt like it was back to my first year in business when, you know, I just needed to keep selling bottles and boxes. And that was the best use of time was those direct sales. And um, you know, having that many people really come out and wanting to support local and wanting to support women and wanting to support, you know, what was in their backyard. People made a lot of conscious choices about how they were spending their money. And I believe that those folks in the Valley probably didn't have that opportunity as much as those of us did here in the city. And that's obviously a microcosm and it'll never, it'll never happen again, knock on wood. Um, but, you know, <laughs> It, it was what it was at the time, and it really was a huge help to my business. And honestly, I think for my psyche, to be able to stand six feet apart off someone's porch and have a five-minute conversation about how they're doing and about, you know, the wine and, and just having human interaction was not only saving my business, but probably my soul a little bit. And that was, that was, a, that was a very, very big deal. Yeah, well, it comes back to that community feel and, you know, the, I guess, you know, the humanity of wine, even, you know, it's such a deeply, you know, human beverage from the very start of its production to where it ends up, you know, the entire gamut, there's so many touch points. Um, and so, yeah, I think that where everyone else felt incredibly isolated. It was so good to be able to tap into that community that you had on your doorstep and super lucky. Yeah, it was really lucky. It definitely was really lucky. Um, before I forget, I do wanna mention also, for those of you on this call who are local, um, May is Oregon Wine Month. And in honor of Oregon Wine Month on May 22nd, the Portland Urban Winery Association is having our first trade tasting in over four years, where um, it's called the PDX Urban Wine Experience, which for one low price, uh, you can um, come and taste three wines from all 13 members of the PDX Urban Wine Association. Also a portion of the, the proceeds are going to benefit the nonprofit JOIN, which is helping our, our uh, more disadvantaged members of our community here in Portland. So um, by all means, buy your ticket, come and join us. Tickets are limited, but you will get exactly what we're talking about, a smattering of being able to taste all of these different wines from all of these winemakers in one location. Awesome, and look forward to it. 
And yeah, for those of you out there, get out there and support your community, your local community that's in your backyard. Come out and explore. Uh, with that, I would like to thank Anne and Alex for joining us and for Julia and David for being the masters of the chat response. I appreciate that. It's always nice to not have to do it yourself. Um, but really interesting conversation. And I can't wait to get back into Portland and see what you're all up to yet again. Um, and there's always something new to explore. So thank you so much for being part of this. David, I'm going to throw it back to you to give us a wrap up. Hey, thanks, Bree, and thanks everybody for joining and the panelists. That was a great. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. Very, very special. You are so special. You even in the Bible. Give me the red, red wine. Give me the white, white wine. Give me the sweet, sweet wine. Give me the wine.